I didn't know this was my first encounter with her. I didn't remember. I don't remember her from it. It's only because I looked this up. No, I'm blanking on her name. She's from Mad Men. Oh, Christina Hendricks. Christina Hendricks. Yeah. Was in this terrible MTV series. Are you talking about Undressed? Undressed, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which she was like, I didn't even know that that, that she was in. I crazy loved Undressed. Yeah. Because and of course I was a, a, a was grown. So I was a grown man. It was. <laughs> So, so bad. bad. But it was good bad. Yeah, it was like porn for 12-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was <laughs> like, it would like set up these super transgressive situations. Yep. And then it would cut away and go like, and then they totally did it. <laughs> <laughs> you remember when we did it? Yeah. That was awesome. <laughs> it, was, it, it was so bad. I couldn't stop watching it. <laughs> Recorded in our Nerdhaven studios, this is Pop Medieval, with your hosts, Dr. Richard Scott Noakes and Nina McIntyre, discussing the intersection of medieval literature and pop culture on a semi-weekly basis. And now, back to your podcast. What, Nina? What, Doc? Well, it's the most wonderful time of the year for uh, people who love film, and that is Movember. That's right. We're bringing it back again, year two. Yeah, so uh, just to pull back the curtain a little bit, we had decided way back when we made this that that it was very easy to drift into having another movie podcast. And so we decided to put discussions of films just to sequester them off into one month. And that would be uh, the month of November, as we call it, Movember. We did not count on in our second year there being a pandemic, so almost no movies were getting released. (laughs) So sequestering them has become quite easy. We thought we were going to have a whole bunch of new movies. Last time we had a whole bunch. But this time, uh, instead, we've dug into the past and are looking at movies based on one book in particular. And that is The Decameron. Exactly. And there's a lot to pick from, aren't there? So before we go any further, I should warn our listeners. Now, this is normally not an adult-themed podcast, but some of the issues that come up here are definitely going to have maybe some adult language and definitely some reference to uh, sexual situations and other sorts of adult things. So if you don't want to listen to that or you don't want to play this loudly uh, wherever you are (laughs) around children or in your workplace or whatnot, uh, I would recommend turning it off now uh, and uh, not listening to the rest of this one and coming back in a couple more weeks when we have something else delightful (laughs) that no doubt will be more family friendly than what we have today. Like uh, This American Life says, we have to acknowledge the existence of sex in this podcast. Yes, and there will be a lot. So, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so this time, this is about the Decameron. And the Decameron has, for, for such an important f- book that has a hundred stories in it, many of which are the best stories in, uh, you know, some of the best short stories in the Middle Ages, there are very few good, or no, very few film adaptations. I'm not even going to say good film adaptations. We'll get into that issue uh, in a little bit. But just to give you a very brief history of the Decameron in film, and it's very brief, uh, in 1953, there was a film called *The Cameron Nights, spelled like night as in not daytime. And that one, uh, it's billed often now, you'll see as a, a Joan Collins film. Uh, she has a kind of a smaller role in that. She, of course, became very famous later. It was uh, Joan Fontaine. 
Louis Jordan, I think is how you pronounce his name. I actually am not super familiar with him as an actor. He, he looks very familiar. He's one you see a lot, but I, I don't know him well. Uh, it's about Boccaccio trying to seduce this a widow by telling her several stories uh, that are kind of sexually transgressive stories. And it's to the level of what you could do in 1953. But the things that happen are pretty transgressive. Pretty racy for that time. Yes, the content certainly was. And then when we come to 19, 1971, there's an Italian film that I have not seen called The Cameron, which has a whole bunch of different stories in it. That one, I gather, is extremely sexually explicit. I haven't seen it, so I can't speak to that. I actually tried looking for it. I don't know. I'm not sure how to lay hands on it today. You know, for uh, research purposes. Yes, for research purposes. <laughs> uh, and then there's really not a lot until we get to the two films that we're focusing on today, which are Virgin Territory and The Little Whores. Whores spelled like ours, and we'll probably refer mm -hmm. to it as The Little Hours. I don't know. Maybe we'll call it The Little Whores. And then apparently in this year, which is 2020 when we're recording, Woody Allen uh, was supposed to release a film Bop to Cameron or to Cameron Bop, which was not supposed to be a retelling of the Cameron, uh, but he, for some reason... He's changed the title of it, which will mean that it will not be part of the uh, all of this. Oh, I should mention that Virgin Territory, when we get to that later, uh, during its production, I think its initial project title was The Cameron Pie, because it was supposed to be in the vein of the American Pie, you know, teen sex comedies. Now, yeah. almost all of these, I, I can't speak to the Woody Allen film because that's not out yet, and in fact... By all accounts, it's just a bunch of stories connected by a frame, so it isn't really the telling of the Cameron. Except for the 1953 to Cameron Knight's one, every one of them either has depicted in it or the central idea is one particular story from the Decameron. There's 90, there's 100 stories to choose from, but everyone wants to do this one, uh, which is day three, story one, and it's about a guy who becomes a gardener in a convent and he pretends to be deaf and dumb and he has sex with all the nuns. Uh, By dumb, you mean mute. Yes, yeah, mute. Today, yes, yeah. deaf and mute. Yeah. Yes, deaf and mute. Yeah, and he has sex with all the nuns. Their sense is that he can't, because he can't speak to anyone, that he will keep their secret. Uh, but of course, he's, uh, it's all a, a trick from him. And it's a very lighthearted and, and fun story. And so, for some reason, of all the stories in the Cameron, this is the one that people keep coming back to to make films about. Uh, to make a film about. Even though there are other ones, which... Also deal with, you know, naughty clergy. Uh, also deal with sexually fun things or adventurous things. This is the one that everyone wants to return to. Well, uh, so that's basically the history of all this. So Nina, I guess the audience should know that we chose these. I had seen uh, both of them. You had, I think, only seen the little whores, the little hours. Yes. And uh, you have a lot to say about this. Uh, and most of it I haven't heard yet. So... I'm just going to let you tell us your reaction to either Virgin Territory or the Little, little Hours uh, as you wish. Okay, so let's start with Virgin Territory. Now, explaining that these are both sex comedies. Both of these movies are sex comedies, like teen rom-com sex comedies. Both very different in execution. Yes. Virgin Territory, it's a Phil Estrato story who's telling day three story one but it's also a, it's a combination of that story and the decameron frame story which is these uh teenagers or these 20 somethings who are leaving florence for the countryside to escape to a villa to hide from the plague and it's also part letter to penthouse 
which, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to explain that. If you're old enough to listen to this podcast, you know what a letter to penthouse is. So we've got three different plot lines going on in this movie. One is Lorenzo, played by Hayden Christensen. He needs to hide from uh, Gerbino de la Rata, who's played by Tim Roth, mm-hmm. uh, for reasons. And I had to look up what exact because I didn't catch it in the beginning why he was hiding from Tim Roth's character and I think it's like gambling issues yeah he he wins something wins something from him in gambling and so Tim Roth is going to kill him and it's not clear in the yeah it's not clear to me even after watching it twice which I've done for you so you're welcome Uh, thank you I have I've sacrificed for you in this audience it's not clear whether he caught him cheating or whether Tim Roth is just like, yeah, you won, but I don't care. I'm going to kill you. So I have to pay the bet. I guess it'd be easier just not to pay the bet than kill him. But right. I I didn't understand what was going on in the beginning. But anyway, he hides in a nearby convent, which is not very consistent with the story. But, you know, there's a convent involved and it's filled with sexy, horny nuns. Mm -hmm. They're not mean as they are in the story. In the story, they're mean, nasty nuns. Mm -hmm. And these nuns mistake him for being a uh, another deaf mute because they had already previously lost their deaf mute gardener mm-hmm. and that they can have sex with him he willingly obliges mm-hmm. so that's plot a plot b is uh Pompania, um mm-hmm. also the name of one of the decameron storytellers if i'm not mistaken yes and also by the way in decameron nights that's the name of the character who joan collins plays Okay, so we got a little bit of consistency going There are on. seven female storytellers, but that's one of the names that every movie maker seems to like. I see. Okay. I, I guess it's prettier. I don't know. That's nice, I guess. Well, she is set to marry Russian Count, uh, and I'm going to butcher this because I don't speak Russian, uh, Zerzinski, played by Matthew Reese, and who she's never met. Mm-hmm. And sidebar, I think that this plot is based on another one of the decameron stories but it seems very either very decameron or very shakespearean i i don't know it's it's very familiar feeling like the whole confusion about who i'm going to marry and who i'm going to marry at the end yes i i will just say there are so i spent a little time trying to figure out so there are a hundred stories in the cameron yeah so just using names and plot lines trying to figure out what elements come from what stories and it's really difficult. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that most of it is just sort of, it does kind of sound, when you see it, when you see the story, you think, oh, this must be based on one of the stories. I don't remember. But they really aren't or are sort of, if you turn your head, kind of reminds mm-hmm. you of them. So yeah. they're pretty close to, it's the kind of thing you'd have in the Decameron for sure. Right. It's enough Decameron-ish to say, okay, I'm going to give this a pass and say this seems like it would work. But anyway, Pampania is uh, suddenly an orphan. Her parents are dead. They leave all of their property to her, which, you know, I'm not an expert in medieval um, estate law, but I, that doesn't seem like it would make sense. They'd leave it to their female heir. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That seems a lot more Northern European, I, but yeah. I, 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 I don't know about inheritance law in 15th yeah. century Italy. Right. So like yeah. if it's were if this were Norway, I'd be like, oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm uh, not going to yeah. pick at this terrible movie. Spoiler alert. Yeah. I, I, I don't, th- I, don't think, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think 
getting into the details this of inheritance is, this law. This is not, yeah, this is this is one of those things I'm going to let this movie slide on. So Gerbino, Delarada, Tim Roth's character, decides, no, I want all this property and I want this beautiful woman to myself. So he is going to force her to marry him. Mm-hmm. Which, which again, it, it doesn't refer to a specific story, but there are lots of stories about guys yeah. trying to force women to marry them. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Again, that that pretty much jives. Mm -hmm. And to get away from him, she's going to hide out in the same convent that Lorenzo is hiding out in. Mm -hmm. And she recognizes him. He doesn't recognize her because she's got a nun's veil on. But uh, that is plot B. And then plot C, because there is another plot going on, is uh, Pompania's friends, including uh, Melissa, Philomena, Gino, and... Dionio, there. Those are also very familiar names. I think uh, Filomino and Dionio are also storytellers yes, from yeah, the Cameron. Are. Okay, Melissa is not. So. Melissa is not. I didn't think so. That seemed like too recent of a name. Yeah. Like too familiar of a name. They are all virgins. They are very insistent that they remain virgins until marriage. Well, the the women are, and they are all leaving Florence to escape the plague, a la the Cameron, and um, shenanigans ensue. And But they're also going to the wedding of Pampania and the Count at some point. Which is supposed to take place at this country estate. Yes, correct. So those are the three plots that are going on. They're all connected. That is the gist of what's going on in this movie. And, th- and then it ends in the Shakespearean way where everyone ends up... Everyone the, gets with, married with, and love. Everyone ends up with the partner that they're supposed to end up with. Right, yeah. So it's happy ending, all except, you know, I, I, I joked with Engineer Mike. I said, so uh, Lorenzo has a bad cut on his head. It's going to get infected. He's going to be dead in two months because you, you guys don't have antibiotics yet. So <laughs> I don't think it's going to end happily for at least one of those couples. Now, after you watched this film, you sent yes. me a whole bunch of messages but how angry you were, and then you stopped and said you were going to have to save it for the podcast. So, oh my I'm, I'm god! Ready, I'm re- please, please vent your spleen upon the uh, mm. upon the pod waves for us. Oh my god, this movie is so bad. It's just bad. <laughs> like to paraphrase Roger Ebert when he vented about the movie North. I hated this movie. Hated, hated, hated it. Hated it. Every mediocre moment of this movie. It was just so friggin' bad. I'm trying not to swear right now because I do want to keep the E off of this episode. That's how much I hated this movie. And you know I love bad movies. You know we just adore Mm -hmm. bad movies. But this movie wasn't even fun bad. Like, it wasn't a good movie on its own. It wasn't even a good softcore porn. In fact, that's kind of what... I got mad at you for a minute because I thought, did you send me a softcore porn to watch? (laughs) And I... Like, okay, you know I'm I, not a prude, I, but I didn't think we were that comfortable with each other to recommend, you know, Skinamax movies. I kind of did send you one, though it was because I don't have that many choices for the Cameron movies. <laughs> and and the accounts I've heard of the 1971 Decameron film is that it's not softcore, but I, I have not, like I said, I have not seen it, so Oh, it's I just like, it's one. hardcore, like, you know, things yeah, going into things? Yeah, this is like, I, I look, I haven't seen it, but like, Virgin <laughs> Territory definitely feels like it was written by a 12-year-old. Yeah. You know, based on glimpses. We're going to put boobies that, in this movie. Yes, exactly. Sorry. I, I can't stop myself. It's It's coming. It's coming. Well, let's hear it. Don't, okay, don't, so don't stop yourself. No one wants no, to hear you hold back here. We we want you to go for it. So it's like I'm not above a good sex comedy, but this is gross and uncomfortable and unpleasant. It's not even a good Decameron retelling. 
Like, okay, so it's all over the place. Um, it doesn't stick to the original story from which it's cribbing, it, nor does it stick to the frame story. So it's, okay, so less than halfway through the movie, the nuns find out that Lorenzo can speak, and they kick him out. And that's, and then, so his plot is over. Yes, that's right. So that's first and foremost, okay, that's the end of that story. The virgins from plot C, they never end up at the villa to escape the plague. No, no, they, they do end up at the, they do end up at the villa. It's just how that they get there. Like we see yeah. them there embracing the other, but there, there's a lot of connective tissue missing. It's like they teleported there because they needed to be there for the final we'll, shots. We'll get to the editing in just a minute because yeah. I, again, like, okay. Also about the whole virginity thing, if I can be crude for, well, I'm, I'm going to be crude. Um, they're not very good about that whole virginity pledge either. Like it seems to only suit them when they want it to. At least, you know, the women are, and I, I hate to point that out. So they're only insistent upon remaining virgins until marriage, but then willing to just forget about it whenever. And that makes me think, um, you know, did a man write this? Was, you know, what what man had anything to do with this movie? It, it frustrates me. I think it's possible it was written by a male, but an adult yes. man, I'm not certain about that. Like I said, it feels like it was written <laughs> by a 12-year-old. It really what, does. What child scribbled in crayon of this this movie and then again like we brought up the whole ending the multiple marriages again what what are they pulling from is this a de cameron story is this from shakespeare because i was thinking of like taming of the shrew Mm -hmm. or uh a midsummer night's dream like what are you doing what what is the end goal with this movie so it doesn't work as a de cameron retelling because it doesn't know what it wants to do the nuns in the convent are just there as sexed up nuns they don't have they don't really serve a purpose other than to be there for the delight of Lorenzo. And it's also that it's evident that the nuns have done this before. Well, now in the story, there is the implication in the, in yeah, the story, in the there's story. The implication that the previously dead gardener, yeah. that, that he's replacing a previous gardener who may have right. done the same thing. Exactly. And, and in this film, in the movie, that's evident, not in the Cameron story. Um, I guess I always thought it was implied in that or, or that he's, now I can't remember. Now that now that you, now you're making me question myself. This, well, like this they, is the problem with having a hundred short stories. Because I, I read the story this morning, and yeah. what they were discussing while looking at Masetto, they were saying, "Well, aren't we supposed to pledge our virginities to God?" And they're like, "Well, you know, he's deaf and mute. He's not going to say anything." Right. And then that's what kind of convinces them. Well, we're going to you know take advantage of him. I mean, there's question about who's taking advantage of whom in in the original De Cameron yeah. story, but. Well, I did think I, it was really the convent of nuns, I think, in Virgin Territory was a missed opportunity for some characterization because at some point in the C plot, the characters there get captured by bandits and the bandits there have a like lot more Tunisian pirates. I, I didn't understand Yes, I that think they're all. Tunisian pirates. Yeah, I mean, you have pirates and Tunisian pirates. Uh, often in the Decameron as a way of kind of taking someone out of the situation that they're in. In this case, they actually had some personality, whereas the nuns in the convent were basically just, I guess, nude models who they got to yeah. to play these roles. Right. They didn't really seem to have any particular role. At one point, it felt like the mother superior was going to get some sort of personality uh, but she she kind of doesn't. Um, <laughs> no, she gets some, but she doesn't get yeah. some personality. No, I agree. This was a, not a good movie. No. And speaking of which, yeah. you know, a, as a movie, it doesn't work either. Hmm. I mean, okay, first of all, what is with the bad ADR? 
Like at one point, I, the actress that was playing Melissa, if you, she does that quote sexy dance mm-hmm. for the Tunisian pirates, and she's talking, and then like you see her lips move, and then you hear her dialogue. And I, I just what is what is even with this movie? There's this bad mid two thousands rock music uh, score. Like the that's the music they chose for this movie, and I think it's reminiscent of a Knight's Tale. Yes, I thought that's what they were going for is a Knight's Tale, where which just uh, pisses me off. Like, well, sorry, go it, ahead. I mean, it's not a bad impulse necessarily. It's just so poorly done from beginning to yeah. end. I don't mind using contemporary music for you know for a medieval film, especially one that doesn't take itself seriously. Right. And the funny when I said doesn't take itself seriously, um, <laughs> the funny thing is. The only person I wasn't angry at in this was Tim Roth, who seemed to not, maybe you hated him too, but he seemed to not be aware this was a comedy uh, and seemed to be (laughs) playing it pretty straight, which is, I guess, why he wasn't terrible. I mean, the the character's motivations don't make any sense. The, as you know, you talked about the editing there's some characters in here who so one character who's introduced who apparently must have ended up in the cutting room floor is Bruno. Well, the actor who plays Bruno, whose name I'm I'm forgetting at the moment, commonly plays a stupid person. Yeah. He's there. I he maybe has two lines. And then he's one of the guys marrying one of the milkmaids in the end, as if he's been a major character in whom we're invested. And Bruno's the name of a character who's commonly mm-hmm. a stupid character in the Decameron. So I think, well, maybe he was a at one point, there was something there, but no. Suddenly, he's there in the end, and he's getting married, and all I'm suddenly thinking we is, got another Decameron story. Yeah. Yes, and all I'm thinking is, yeah. And who cares? And he's marrying someone who, as far as we met, no, he has literally never met. Yeah, because <laughs> it's the other two guys. It's Dionio and uh, Gino that go off with the milkmaids. Right. And, and so, Gina oh, put a pin in that. I've got something to say about the milkmaids, but go ahead. Well, anyway, so the Gina. Gino marries one of the milkmaids and then Bruno marries one of the milkmaids and Bruno had gone on with the rest of the group. So yeah, there's no, he had no opportunity to meet the milkmaids at all. Right. Yet he's marrying one. Anyway, let's hear your, uh, let's hear your. I know. So Tim Roth. Okay. So I, I'm just like, what are you doing in this movie? Like he's, (laughs) you say he's really good, but the rest of the cast just brings him down. He's got one line in this movie where he goes, he says to Matthew Reese's character, who's playing the Count, he goes, you seem like a really big Count. And I'm thinking, were you trying to get him to say the C word there? Like, was the script, like, was the script line the C word? And then you just, and it was edited to say Count instead. And I, I, uh, maybe it was also, we can't. This is already R rated, but. Was it R rated? It was, oh yeah, it was our, oh, oh okay. God, there were so many boobs and, you know, well, I mean, there was full frontal male nudity too. Yes, that's so, true. Yeah. Of a comic variety. So if uh, anyone's going here to be titillated by that, you're not going to be too happy with what you see. Uh, costumes were bad. Uh, Philomena was in modern wedge boots. Like she, yeah, she keeps hiking up her skirt and she's like, I was looking at her boots and I'm like, those are boots you would wear in 2007. She's got like knee high wedge boots and i'm like what did anyone give a crap about this movie to dress these women correctly i i mean all the costumes i don't know if you're aware of the site called yandy but it's all it's a lingerie site that's who styled this movie oh it's it's just yeah so i'm mm. oh also this is not period cleavage i just know this. Like, I, was, 
I just I just want to go on record by saying that this was not period cleavage. The end of this movie was just the end of Men in Tights. I don't know if you caught that. The swashbuckling and uh, the everyone getting married yes. and the, the, the silly priest. That was great. And then Misha Barton, the actress that plays Pampania and Hayden Christensen look like brother and sister. I did not buy them as a couple. It I am gross. so glad that you said that because Thank you. there is a there is a scene in which she is dressed as a nun. So we only see her face. And for one split second, I thought it was yeah. Hayden Christensen. <laughs> they look so similar yeah. that I I did think, wow, they the only thing yeah. that they would bring them together would be narcissism. Uh, because each one is attracted to their own self uh, and the other one. So it was kind of gross, actually. Yeah, it, it's just, this doesn't work. Like, they're both attractive people, but, like, attractive with each other? No, I, I'm i not buying this at all. Without getting too deep into this, I've never understood Misha Barton as an attractive person. So, uh, you know, I... Well... I mean, she's not... I mean, I don't look at her and immediately go to the go to vomit or something. But it's just, I always think, like, her? Okay, she's fine. <laughs> Hey, you know, to each their own. And, you know, if she doesn't have that, she could have some acting skill. That would be nice. But if she has it, she doesn't deploy it in this film. She was in The Sixth Sense. She was the little girl that threw up on herself in The Sixth Sense. I did not know that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, there we go. So there, there, vomit has come up twice with regard to There we her. go. Finally, this does not work as a softcore porno because... And then circling back around to editing because all of this, the good stuff is edited to crap. <laughs> and all the stuff that is left just doesn't do it for me. Or anyone, I should say. Uh, it, it's it's just boring and uninteresting. Like, why are the nuns bathing Lorenzo? That's a great question. And that's a thing which... Is that um, a medieval thing? I don't think so. I don't think so. It's not a Catholic thing. No. And, I can say this as a former Catholic. And no. being, being naked... <laughs> that is not part of liturgy. Being naked with other people is also kind of not a medieval thing. Even with people who are, you know, are the same sex as you, it's kind of not commonly done. Um, yes. Modesty, people maintain their modesty in different ways. And that would have been a strange thing to do. If there's some reference to it somewhere in literature, I, I don't know it. No, you're right. And it doesn't work. It's not titillating. And when it tries to, it either misses the mark altogether or is just gross. Finally, to wrap this up about this movie so we can go on to the little whores, bringing it back to the milkmaids, I just want to say five words, money shot with a cow. I guess the real audience for this film are people who want bestiality, but also want it to be softcore. I think that's maybe who the audience is for this film, which is not me. No, it's not me either. It it really shouldn't be any of you guys listening to this podcast (laughs) either, because... If you started this podcast and said, oh, I hope they like virgin territory. Well, you should have turned off like 20 minutes ago. <laughs> Let's move on to the little whores, which uh, I, since I talked about softcore porn, I said money shot in this podcast. We should probably start saying the little hours. So the little hours. Mm-hmm. This is a combination of day three, story one, mm-hmm. as we've been talking about. Day three, story two. I don't know if you caught that. This Which, which one is day three, story two? Sorry, day I didn't three, that. Day three, story three is uh, a page of a king sleeps with the king's wife. Oh, and yes. yeah, the king finds out about it and then shaves the page's head. Yes. To keep from being discovered, the page shears every other page's head mm-hmm. and hides amongst them. Yes, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. And it's a combination of something else, which put a pin in that. We'll talk about that when I get to it. Okay. It's a hypothesis of mine. So I know I want you to 
to let me know if I'm onto something. Okay. okay. Uh, vir- virgin territory tries to have the frame, but doesn't. They Correct. basically go to the country house. And before anyone tells a single story, they get married. The little horse doesn't really have the same kind of frame. So tell us what happens in this one. Okay. So again, two plots and going on here. Not, not three. Plot A. Uh, this is the 1300s Italy. Garfignana, I believe it's pronounced. Italy. Three nuns with different personalities. Uh, they live in a rustic convent with uh, their mother superior, Maria, And that's played by Molly Shannon, mm-hmm. um, former SNL alum. And she is sweet and kind. Yes. The mother superior. And Father Tommaso, who is played by the always wonderful John C. Riley, mm-hmm. um, who is affable, but he's a drunk. Mm-hmm. And the nuns are Sister Fernanda, who is Aubrey Plaza. I should I should mention the casting in this movie is just, you know, mwah, chef's kiss. Just yes. Everyone is cast perfectly. Sister Fernanda is secretive and mean. Mm-hmm. Then there's uh, Sister Ginevra, who is Kate Micucci. She is nosy and mean. And a tattletale. And a tattletale. Yeah, she's uh, very much a tattletale. And then there's Sister Alessandra, who is lonely and mean. They are so mean, they abuse, beat up, and chase off their kindly gardener just for looking and talking to them. Yes. He just says, you know, good morning. Isn't it a beautiful morning? And they're mean and they swear at him and throw turnips at him, which is one of my favorite scenes in any movie ever. <laughs> so that's plot A. Plot B is Masetto, who is based off the same character in the uh, Decameron story, mm-hmm. who's played by Dave Franco. Mm-hmm. He is a page working for a wealthy master, Nick Offerman, um, and he gets caught sleeping with the master's wife, Lauren Weedman, and he runs away. And he runs into Father Tommaso, who says, uh, hey, we're looking for a new gardener since our mean and nasty nuns chased our other one away. Why don't you come work for us? But you should probably pretend to be a deaf mute so our nuns leave you alone. They'll probably leave you alone if you pretend to be a deaf mute. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the, the plot and setup of this movie. Which I actually liked as a as a plot device to yes. to get him to pretend that. I thought that was that made sense. The idea that this priest has actually lost all the clothes because he got drunk that they were supposed to sell to raise funds for this convent. Uh, they both have uh, a secret and so they're keeping one of their secrets. And to each yeah. of them it seems like the other person's secret is the is not that great of a secret. Right, exactly. They're not blackmailing each other. They're just no. saying, hey, you help me out. I'll help you out. It's more a conspiracy. Yeah, exactly. Now, this movie works. This movie is, uh, it's anachronistic in dialogues. They speak, no one speaks with any weird British accent pretending to be Italian. They're mostly American in this movie. And they speak with modern American accents and modern cadence. And there's a lot of swearing. But it still works because I think they it attempts to be historically accurate otherwise. So there's a little bit more attention to like the nuns' chores. The nuns are um, washing. Yeah, that and, was a really yeah. fascinating moment. They actually went yeah. through the process of how to wash, explained it. Yeah, to Alison Brie. To Alison Brie, they explained yeah. it to her. And I, I, I thought, huh, that's interesting that they would go to that trouble. Yeah, and they talk of the embroidery that they did, the act of selling that embroidery and and making the shrouds or the clothes that they were making. The costuming and the liturgy that they were showing in the movie, that I thought there was attention to detail there. So it's like this movie gave a crap, Mm -hmm. even though they were using modern language. This They went through the motions of saying, okay, we're going to show that we're doing research. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think the use of modern language in this was... I mean, it was it was mostly played for comedic yeah. effect too. Exactly. Yeah. 
You also see that in uh, Sister Fernanda's witchcraft books. Yes. Uh, spoiler alert. Okay, one of them's a witch. And, and if you know who the actresses are, it won't take you very long to figure out which one is the witch. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty obvious from the get-go which one of them is a witch. So Sister Fernanda opens up one of the books and there is a tapestry. It's kind of familiar. I think I've seen this before. The, the tapestry or the painting in it is a very interesting tree. And I have a question. It's a very serious question for yes. you. This tree has a bunch of penises on it. Yes. Could you please explain the context of the penis tree for me? So this is a common thing that you see in medieval manuscripts where people are just doodling in the, the margins. And sometimes people would doodle all sorts of ribald things. And so just like one of the things that you would find that we, I think we've talked about before are like knights riding snails and belligerent uh, anthropomorphic rabbits and that kind of thing. One other thing you see are penises, but not just penises by themselves, but like on a penis tree, which is a, a kind of thing you'll have. Normally in some sort of context, which is funny. I will tell you, I don't know if you've seen the film, the not medieval film, Superbad. Uh, yes. But in the movie Superbad, there's a character who draws a lot of penises. And then oh, the closing yeah. credits of it are just a montage of penises that he's drawn while the mm -hmm. credits go. And when I saw that, I thought that is an unbelievable medieval thing in this non-medieval <laughs> movie. So, yeah, I mean, so when they show embroidery or when they show a medieval manuscript or this kind of thing, they're not actually showing, they don't show you a recreation of the thing itself. But they show you something right. that looks a lot like the thing itself would look, uh, for sure. So I don't think that one was, for example, a direct recreation of a penis tree. Uh, mm -hmm. But but there are plenty of them, and they look a lot like that. Interesting. Have we said penis enough on this podcast yet? I, I don't think we've made our audience. Uh, Andrew Mike wants to, us to say it a few more times from the okay. expression on his face. Well, we'll move on to belladonna. It's an herb that's used in a witchcraft ritual. Yes. Now, I, I know the, the Victorian use of belladonna as a cosmetic. Mm -hmm. I believe belladonna was used as a cosmetic ingredient until the 1950s. Mm -hmm. Now, what is the, the use of belladonna in medieval ages? Is that pretty accurate how they were using it in the movie? Well, in the movie, they're using it as part of a love potion. And the answer is, I can't, I don't know. And the reason I don't know is that there was a real distinction between what we, for example, in, in medieval medicine, what would be called leechcraft and witchcraft, basically. And the there's a distinction between what an actual, what we'd consider a physician would do versus what's either maybe a pagan holdover or just some sort of folk medicine uh, that's often associated with, with women. And very often, it's not really so much who's doing it, but rather what you're doing with it. And so we do have mm -hmm. lots of remedies that use belladonna to do oh, all sorts of things. Uh, there isn't a particular thing that this isn't the active ingredient that always does X. But if there's something like, well, first of all, if we were to be involved in witchcraft, a witch's coven's ritual, from the get-go, that would be a no-fly zone, to mix metaphors here. Uh, but aside <laughs> from that, uh, it's used to kind of force men to fall in love with them. Um, mm -hmm. That kind of thing, regardless of what you used in it, would definitely be, be considered witchcraft and bad. Uh, yeah. yeah, you can't take someone's will uh, and seduce them in that way. That would be definitely a big no-no. 
so I don't know that witchcraft, or I don't know that belladonna is in the medicine like involved that way, but as soon as you start using it, whether it's for cosmetics or something else, then it becomes really uh, dangerous and, and, right. and witchy for sure. Yeah. Not to mention it will kill you. So <laughs> there's that. And also the music in this movie, the score, mm-hmm. the uh, it's medieval sounding. There's no bro rock. There's no modern uh, music to it. It, it. There's lutes. There are harps. It sounds like a medieval movie. And I like this movie. You know, the, the truth is I didn't think when I first saw the trailers back in is this a 2017 movie? 2017, yeah. yeah. Uh, when I first saw the trailers, I didn't think I'd like it because it has one of, for me, one of my least favorite tropes, which is the the child or the old woman cursing. Mm-hmm. With children cursing, it makes me uncomfortable. But the old woman cursing, or in this case, the nuns cursing, that mm-hmm. that this is supposed to be shocking. I don't find it shocking. I just find it a little overdone and uh, like I'm, I don't find that funny. Nuns uh, misbehaving, yeah. Yeah, but in this case, the nuns misbehaving, that wasn't the kind of the main source of the comedy in it. What I really appreciate about it too, two of the lesser roles, first of Nick Offerman, just endlessly going on about Guelphs and Guelph conspiracies. <laughs> I just laughed every My time he said the word Guelph. Guelph. Yes. <laughs> the other thing is I really don't like Fred Armiston at all. And he has a role in here that he plays so perfectly and he cracked me up so much. Yeah. What I liked best about his part in all this was he kind of came in as a straight man. I mean, he isn't directly a straight man, but as a straight man who, when he's going through all the terrible things that they're doing, he depicts it as, as really terrible, right? Yeah. Uh, There's a wonderful line where he's going through the list of sins and he says, Eating blood. And then he stops and says, <laughs> I, blood? I had to write eating blood. I've never had to write that before. He plays it simultaneously for comedy, but also in the most sincere way that we're supposed yeah. to walk away not thinking like, oh, these nuns are, everything they did was fine. No, it's a lot more like, I guess, um, Animal House, where on yeah. the one hand, we're supposed to side with them, but we're not really supposed to think that they're great people. Uh, right, in yeah. fact, the things that they've no, done they did are bad. terrible. Yes, they yeah. did bad things. They sinned. <laughs> yes. Oh, they definitely did. And I really appreciate that, not just for his performance, but also for the way that it's said to the audience. Here's both the medieval context of this, uh, of how it would be considered here. Uh, yeah. you know, they don't get burned at the stake or anything. He, they're accused and they're guilty of witchcraft. There's the, the wonderful moment where they find out that one of the nuns is both Jewish and has never been baptized and Fred Armiston is just How like, do you even get in here without yes, being exactly. baptized? Uh, they don't elide that. It's just, it's right, right on the surface, which I really appreciated. Yeah. And so the little hours sold itself to me yeah. as, well, I guess this is a thing which I'm going to be annoyed at, but I'm going to enjoy, which was quite the opposite. The things that I thought I was going to be annoyed at, I didn't. I really, 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 I really enjoyed it. Oh, absolutely. Real quick, I want to run through a couple of the departures from the text that I enjoyed, that I thought were Mm -hmm. acceptable. One, Macedo's main reason for being at the convent isn't to bang any of the nuns. He was legitimately hiding out. Yes. And in fact, they, in almost every case, they essentially, all except for one of the nuns, essentially forced themselves on him in one way or the other. Yeah. And arguably, that one, uh, that one nun... Alessandra, yeah. Yeah. Um, Alison Brie's character. Alison Brie, yeah. That one nun, she 
thinks that he's deaf. So I actually don't even mm-hmm. know what she thought she was doing with him. He's a much more innocent character of them, despite the fact that he's been sleeping with his lord's wife through the whole previous yeah. part. I liked the the witchcraft in this. Yes. I, I thought that was an excellent addition. I, I thoroughly enjoyed Sister Ginevra's freakout, which I'll talk in just a minute about. Pulling this back to what I was talking about earlier, the Abelard and Heloise-style romance with uh, Mother Maria and Father Tommaso, I thought that was, I don't know if that was intentional, but I thought that was kind of a little motif. Their romance seemed very much reminiscent of Peter Abelard and Heloise. Like she was the abbess and Mm -hmm. he was this, uh, well, you know, he was a drunk friar, but they couldn't be together and hopefully he wasn't castrated. And then he gets sent, he gets sent away to monastery. Yeah. And then they, they meet up in private. There was enough legit medieval stuff in this that it strikes me as improbable that they didn't know Mm -hmm. that that was, that that was Abelard and Heloise. Right, yeah. Um, even if they, even if after the fact they went like, oh, this is like Abelard and Heloise. There's no way that you know, exactly. You know this much about material culture of the Middle Ages without, without at least recognizing that story. Uh, and then my stray observations, just to go back to Ginevra's freakout. I mean, who hasn't been at a college party and saw that one girl that just took too much? <laughs> And freaked out and just shook their head. Now, I've never been that girl. I've been able to handle my buzz. No, you were a process server when you were a child, as we learned. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) Yes, I was. I handed out the papers to Mm. the girls that freaked out. (laughs) That and also just one, you mentioned the the litany of sins that the bishop read out. Uh, I loved that. The final thing I want to say about, I do wish this movie had a little bit of a better resolution for the nuns. They all seem to want something that they didn't get. Yeah. Like Sister Alessandra, she wanted a better life for herself. Sister Ginevra had some, or Ginevra, I'm sorry, she had some questions about her sexuality that she didn't really get a resolution for. And of course, Sister Fernanda was an all-out witch. She just wanted to convert all of her nun friends into witches, like she clearly said at the end. She's like, I want to convert all you guys to witches. None of them really got that far on any of their wants and desires. I wish there was a little bit more... For them, um, Macedo got what he wanted. He got out of prison, but eh, kind of wish there was more there. But, you know, this movie was so much better than Virgin Territory. I was willing to let that slide. <laughs> yeah, so. I think you're right that it doesn't end, it doesn't have a clear. Perhaps the resolution is that not no character kind of gets what. Yeah. What they want exactly. I mean, they were they were nuns in the 1300s Italy. They're not going to yeah. have a lot of they're going to have agency, but they're not going to have a lot of uh, will in what they get in life. So yeah, if, if, if I can compare it to another comic film, the end of Nacho Libre, where Nacho kind of achieves what he wants to achieve, but he, he's not able to fulfill his romantic desires because he now understands what his role is. Like in the end, each of them is not really fully into their role, right? Uh, One of them is she's waiting to leave the convent to be married. One of them is, secretly a witch one of them is secretly a jew uh and they're not and a lesbian these, yeah and, and a lesbian the the jew was the bigger problem in this case uh <laughs> and in the end they each sort of are pulled back fully into that role and in a way the kind of convent confession that they were these things uh and that those things are now cut off from them might be in be in the way that the end of nacho libre is a kind of hopeful thing where they're going to be able to find their happiness in the role that they yeah. have. 
Exactly. But that's not clearly expressed if it's there. Yeah. Well, we have talked these movies to death, and Engineer Mike's giving us the signal. So we need <laughs> let's let's get on to recommendations. Yes. yes, he's given us the the whippy finger. We're gonna call the it the whippy finger. finger from now on. It's now the it's now the whippy finger. I don't know why it means wrap it up. It's the whippy finger. I'm not a <laughs> singer. I don't know these things. Anyway, so in our show notes. We've got links to the IMDb pages for Virgin Territory and The Little Hours. We also have a link to the Gutenberg Project for the Decameron Day 3 Story 1. If you want to check that out because it is in the public domain, make sure you pick up a used copy of the Decameron at any good used bookstore. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean buy it online if you can. Don't go into a store. We're still under a pandemic. And and I should say also, if people aren't familiar with the Decameron, all the stories are pretty short. So uh, if you yes. just go click on that link, you're not committing yourself to three hours. You're committing no, yourself not to at all. five to ten minutes of reading, probably. Exactly. Yeah. You don't have to read the Decameron all in one setting, of course. No. But let's get on to recommendations. Do you want to go with yours first? And then I'll sure. Go with so speaking of pandemic, one of the interesting things to come out of the pandemic is something that's called the Decameron Project. And the Decameron Project is a bunch of fantasy writers who each write, not each one does every day, but... Every day, a new short story, or in some cases, poem, and it's on a Patreon page. And you can, to see the most recent ones, you can support them. If they get enough support, apparently, per story, then that story becomes just readable there on the Patreon page. I mean, there's a hundred stories and poems there, so there's a lot. I definitely haven't read them all, so uh, the ones that I've looked at are uh, some I really liked, and some I was like, eh, not so much. Like the Decameron itself, the idea was during the pandemic that this is a thing that they're going to do as a, a direct homage. And I don't, I haven't read any stories in there that are really themselves about the, the Decameron or direct homages to the Decameron. Instead, the whole project is, and that's called the Decameron Project. And you can find the link on Patreon and you can read some of their older stories and maybe support them uh, if you like them. Good way to support a project like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. After I watched Virgin Territory the other night, I needed to take a palate cleanser because it was so terrible. Uh, A really good sex comedy about horny Catholic teenagers is Yes, God, Yes. Um, Currently, it's on Netflix. If you're watching this in in recent times, it's still on there. If you're watching it in later times, I don't know where it'll be. It is a fantastic movie, relatively short, only about uh, 70 minutes long. It's really not that long. Oh, I thought it was a series. It's a movie. No, it's a movie. Yeah. I think it's, it's a Netflix original, is it not? It's not a Netflix original. Oh, okay. It just released yeah. to Netflix. But it is about a uh, young Catholic girl in the early 2000s who goes on a Catholic youth retreat. It's It hits a little bit close to home. So one, one time uh, at band camp sort of yes, movie? Kinda, yes, kind of like that. And it is, it's fantastic. It's got a lot of heart to it, a lot of love. One thing Catholics do not do very well, well, several things that Catholics do not do very well. Uh, one of them is go on youth retreats. We do not do that very well at all. I'm sorry, you Protestants, you got that on us. That and casseroles. Watch Yes, God, Yes. It's absolutely fantastic. Okay, well, great. So we finally we managed to come up with uh, Movember uh, films and get rid of some that were, I think, part of a backlog that we wanted to do yes if you enjoyed this aside from listening to the next one and you want to hear more about movies we go back a year to around november i think last year we let november because we had extra stuff going to december uh, you can look at any year that we are there 
around November, you'll find us talking about movies like this. Yes, God, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, West through Hall, Nina. West through Hall, Doc. Pop and Evil was recorded under an evil studio. The hosts are Dr. Richard Scott and Oaks and Nina McNamara. Our audio engineer is Engineer Mike. The music is courtesy of Dr. John Jinwright. For more information, visit our website at profawesome.com slash That's P-R-O-F-A-W-E-S-O-M-E dot com slash Thank you for listening. Michael, mute. Yes, yes I can. can you are it. loud. It's super loud. Your I mic is hear... so awesome, dude. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it is. I can hear you from upstairs. God. Yes. Yeah, I can hear you can, scrolling. We can hear scrolling, yeah. Just mute the mic. You're not part of this conversation. Well, <laughs> you can be part of the conversation, but if you but then you can't use any part of it for yeah. the thing unless you want to spend 6 hours taking your uh your your, your keystrokes audio, out. Yeah. Just mute the mic. <laughs> Just mute the mic. You can't type quieter. We've established that you can't. Well, here's the thing. I it's think it's going he can, to the podcast. He can talk about, it, but then you're committing to taking out all this keystrokes and scrolling you do. <laughs> editing out my own voice is a pleasure <laughs> <laughs>